All right, welcome back to another episode of the Cody Tucker Show. As always, I'm your host, Cody Tucker. Great to have you back. Um, time to kickstart a uh, another episode. Going to go ahead and dive right into it. I have been watching an insane amount of The Sopranos lately. I've been re-watching it for the first time um, since... Yeah, I mean, probably since like it was actually out. Um, like I haven't seen it since then, so I've been rewatching it, and boy, is it changing uh, the way I act. <laughs> I am. I have definitely had more of a "I wish a motherfucker would" mentality than I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Just seeing how old Tony acts anytime someone crosses him has made me kind of like. It's made me kind of hope that someone pulls out in front of me in traffic so that I could, like, you know, go full, full T on them. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Like, just go full on. And, yeah. I don't think that's good. I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, most of my personality, I will say, is just me copying movies. Like, I didn't learn how to be, <laughs> I didn't learn how to act, like, by, like, the way I, I would imagine most, like, normal people do. I just would watch movies 24-7 as a kid, and, like, whoever was, like, cool in the movie, I'd be like, oh, that's, that. I'm just going to start adapting that. And um, it turns out that movies are not uh, real life. <laughs> and so saying things that like a movie character says or acting the way a movie character uh, does doesn't always actually rarely ever translates to um you know middle school <laughs> so like i'd be in like middle school acting like uh i don't know like travis bickle or something which had to have been a massive red flag especially with just my all my overall demeanor as a uh, you know Marilyn Manson uh, Rammstein fan that couldn't have helped at all so anyways that's just a little you know little taste of uh, what's going on in my world but regardless you know that's neither here nor there let's go ahead and go in and uh, take a look at the news see what's going on in the world alright so first uh, first up oh boy um, Burning Man dubbed Trenchfoot 2023, as rain drenches event, attendees stuck in mud told to conserve food, water, and fuel. <laughs> I love this so much. Okay, so I have, I to me, like I don't travel much at all. But there are a few places where I'm like, and I, I hate traveling. I completely hate it. I know that, like, oh, you learn so much about the world by traveling. I, whatever. <clears throat> I, I hate it. I hate the process of traveling. I hate road trips. I hate being in a car. Don't like being in a plane. Never done a trip on a boat. I imagine I would hate it, too. Um, I just hate it. I hate going somewhere. Um, that being said, there are places that are worth it to me. Like, there are... There's certain cities, certain like things to do that I'm like, all right, that's worth like that's worth the headache of travel. Burning Man 
to me, if Burning Man was happening, like, down my street, I would not travel to go to Burning Man. <laughs> you couldn't pay me. There isn't enough money in this world that could get me to go spend, I don't know, how long does Burning Man last? Like a week? Two weeks? I mean, I think it's like a pretty, it's not like a weekend. I don't think, I think it's like a pretty good amount of time. Let's say it's a week, which I may be wrong, maybe right, I don't know. For, like, there, there's just no, there's no force on heaven or earth that is getting me to Burning Man. And having me stay at Burning Man for the duration of that just... One, I hate the sand. And from all the videos I've ever seen of Burning Man, it's just a bunch of smelly, nasty, disgusting people rolling around in the sand. Uh, doing an insane amount of molly, you know, mushrooms, whatever. Nothing about Burning Man. And I've like I've heard people who go to Burning Man like... Oh my god, it's such a religious experience. Yeah, well, <laughs> I kicked all that out of my life too. <laughs> so, I don't need a religious experience. The closest thing I get to, I mean, I'll, if I go to like, uh, you know, if I go to like uh, a Knicks game at Madison Square Garden, that'll be my religious experience. And that lasts for about four hours. No sand, no heat, no hippies. I know elect EDM. God, there is there is not a single thing about Burning Man that attracts me to Burning Man. So when I hear <laughs> that all these disgusting people are getting flooded out, it like it warms my heart <laughs> knowing that their experience is ruined cuz this you you shouldn't be doing this. Like going out it's just like every time I see it and like I always see like videos, pictures, whatever, because I know people who go to Burning Man and the more I, I say I like, these are people that at one point I probably considered friends. And the second that I see that they're at Burning Man, I'm like, well, my God, I guess that, <laughs> I guess that ship has sailed. <laughs> like the, you know. And people like what they like. It's all right to like different things. It's all right if you like Burning Man. I mean, if you do, then hey, that's your thing. Whatever. Just know, and this may not even matter to you. It probably shouldn't matter to you. But I think you are a complete fucking idiot. Like, it is... Oh, my God. Like, getting trench foot is the best thing. Is the... To me... Like, if I went to Burning Man and got trench foot, I would be like, yeah, this is what I deserve. I deserve having my foot rotting off for thinking that this was going to be a fun thing to do. <laughs> I mean, like, I can't go, like, I can't go more than 12 hours without taking a shower. And I don't know, I can't imagine the shower situation in the middle of the desert of Burning Man is anything uh, spectacular. I also have a real... I mean, in general, I'm kind of like... as For someone who grew up decently white trash, I am kind of a snooty person, which I've come to realize. But it's also because I realized that, like, I am, in general, very uncomfortable at all times. Mentally, physically... 
uh, emotionally, whatever it may be. I'm always just on edge, uncomfortable. So I like take a lot of pride in being able to heighten my relaxation to whatever the max I can make, which usually, uh, you know, is not a lot, but I have to like overcompensate for just the general discomfort I have 24 seven. So for so, if there's anything that sounds uncomfortable to do, I'm not doing it. I'm not going somewhere like it has to be something that is like, oh, this is like my ideal thing. And for some people, somehow Burning Man is that thing. Now, granted, all those people have something in common, which is that they get fucked up on Molly all the time, which is already just ugh. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know how else to describe people. <clears throat> Anytime I hear people talk about how they're rolling, I'm like, you're fucking gross. Like, you know, and this comes from somebody who is a full blown alcoholic who just happens to not drink anymore. But I just think, like, ugh, it's just, there's just nothing fun about this to me. And. But, uh, yeah, to go back, so, like, shower situation, 100% can't be good. And I, like, part of the comfort thing is I need to shower. I have to be able to take a shower, like, at least probably twice. Twice a day is, like, my routine. Sometimes three times a day. Like, hot weather shit, shit starts, you know, sogging up down there. Three showers in a day. Um, and then, like, porta-potties. <laughs> no, sir. Um, I remember one time I went to this like fest, um, they used to do the mayhem fest, which if anyone remembers that, um, you know, cool, but, uh, <laughs> it was, um, I mean, I actually, it was fun. It was just that I was in a giant concrete parking lot from noon till about 10 at night. Um, and it was about 114 degrees and yeah, so I was basically in like, Stage one heat stroke <laughs> for, yeah, was it 10 hours? Um, and I remember, like, as soon as I got there, so I got there, yeah, like 12, 100, already about 110 degrees, 112 degrees, heat cooking its way up to 114 any minute now. And I'm there for like an hour. My God, like, I gotta take a piss, like, so bad. Not a, not a number two, I just had to take a, a good old, old fashioned number one. And there's like a line of porta potties. So I'm like, oh, here we go. Get into it. I went through every one of them. <laughs> I went through every door like I was on them. Uh, let's make a deal. And the just, oh, God. Like, it is like, I can't even, I cannot accurately describe how disgusting every one of them was within like an hour. Like, that's how long it took for. A row of I would say at least twenty porta potties to become just mounds of diarrhea, piss, vomit, a little blood, which was also alarming. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, use needles, which granted corn was performing, so you know there's going to be a fair share of a uh, heroin. There's going to be a fair share of shooting up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anytime corn's in town but um yeah i so and that's in an hour that's a, in an hour and i don't know how many people go to burning man i imagine it's 
so much more than we're at, you know, a heavy metal festival. Um, so I can't imagine what like a porta potty situation at Burning Man is after like three days. Oh God, I just just don't do this. <laughs> like why? Why are you doing this? What is what is the purpose of it? If someone can accurately explain to me why Burning Man is a thing and what like enjoyment you get out of this, tell me. I really am curious to know like cuz in my mind it's it is hell on earth to me. And I mean this whole trench foot thing, you know, flooding and all this stuff, it'd be I would welcome it. That's how much I think I would hate this damn festival. So I mean, if I'm wrong, hey, I'm wrong, and be and tell me, I I'll take it. But I I just don't understand. So enough about Burning Man. Let's move on from that. Um, ta -ta -ta -ta, next story. Okay, so <laughs> a woman claims Delta Airlines lost her dog at Atlanta Airport. I am truly desperate. I assume the woman says, um, yeah, claims Delta Airlines lost her dog at the Atlanta. Hey. Dog's dead. <laughs> that dog is en route to um, who knows where. Hopefully not a certain area of the world uh, <laughs> for, you know, obvious reasons. But um, there's a very good chance your dog is, you know, in New York City getting chased by two burglars. Uh, the wet bandits as they are as they are. Probably ordering a shit ton of room service, having Tim Curry uh, trying desperately to foil his plans. Your dog's all right. Don't worry. All right. Next one. Da, 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 da. Fruits and vegetables are less nutritious than they used to be. Mounting evidence shows that many of today's whole foods aren't as packed with vitamins and nutrients as they were 70 years ago, potentially putting people's health at risk. <laughs> Joke's on you. I've been eating McDonald's and ice cream for the past 20 years. Healthy as an ox. That might explain it. Every time I go to the doctor, immediately I'm thinking, I'm going to be told that I'm going to die. <laughs> That's what I think I'm going to get told every single time. Is that, oh my God, you have a week to live. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's the, uh, you know, the good old anxiety kicking in, but... That's just what I assume. I'm also, you know, a great big, a great big fat person. And that has, you know, that adds a little stress to things. Um, but I just assume I'm getting told something horrible. So, don't go to the doctor. I mean, I do go sometimes because, you know, you gotta. But still. And by some miracle. Some, you know, praise be to Allah, the doctor comes in with the little report and is like, I mean, other than you being a big old fat fuck, you're, like, really goddamn healthy. Somehow. Like, the last time I had blood work done was actually whenever I weighed the most I've ever weighed in my life. 426 pounds. Beat that. Um, the only thing, I mean, obviously they tell me to lose weight. They tell me to lose weight every time. They tell me to lose weight, quit smoking. Not doing either one. Um, but, you know, they have to say that shit. So, but, like, I 
did blood work. This is when we weighed 426 pounds, was drinking an insane amount. Um, but this was like whenever I was in like my beer stage. <laughs> so like started weighing a ton. When I switched to whiskey, I lost a little bit of weight. But then things got real bad. Uh, that's whenever, you know, there actually were some medical issues. A.K.A. quit drinking. Um, you know, the rest is... <laughs> the rest is history. So, before all that, back up. Um, I in the I'm in the doctor's office, weighing 426 pounds at the time, drinking 100 beers a week, roughly. Um, they had me add that up too because <laughs> when he said, "How many beers do you or how many drinks do you have in a day?" I wrote a you know, a rough estimate. And he said, no, 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 no. I mean a day, not uh, a week. And I said, oh, I know, I, I know what I wrote. <laughs> that is a day. And so then that turned into, wait, 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 wait. Write down, let's figure it out. So I did go through all that. I'm sidetracking myself, God damn it. All right, so at this time, roughly 100 drinks a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, weighing 426 pounds, eating horribly, eating basically nothing but, so basically drinking a 30 pack of beer and then go, the most, the shit that I'm legitimately joking aside, most ashamed of, driving to Taco Bell, getting five five layer burritos, driving back home and eating those in about 10 minutes and then falling asleep immediately afterwards. Maybe throwing up, maybe not. Um, so that's like the, that's my routine. All that was wrong with me is my sugar levels were slightly elevated. My like triglyceride levels, slightly elevated is like the actual wording he used. Well, your triglycerides are slightly elevated, so you need to lay off like sugar, carbohydrates for a little bit. That's it. <laughs> Everything else, blood pressure. Um, I mean, my like, Resting heartbeat was like a 55, which I think it's still like about a 52, 55. Blood pressure was like 120 over 70, some like one 118 over 71, something like that, which I think is like pretty good. Like, yeah, he had nothing to say. So, like, um, I do not know why I'm saying what I'm saying right now. <laughs> I might have to go check the tape and figure out why am I even talking about any of this? Fruits and vegetables. I for a second I thought we were still talking. I thought I was still talking about Burning Man. Oh no. <laughs> maybe I do. Maybe I. I might need to make a follow up uh, appointment. So um. Yeah, fruits and vegetables. So yeah, I eat like absolute dog shit and weigh a lot. I mean, I'm definitely weigh way less than four twenty six, but I still weigh a lot. I think I'm at probably about three. I think the last time I weighed myself, which I don't think I've changed, I don't think my weight's changed much since then. Um, it was like 364, 365, something like that. Maybe right at 360. And I mean, I might be up or down a two pounds, like hardly anything. So I'm just going to say 360 because I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Um, but I'd know that if I went to the doctor today, everything and did blood work, everything's coming back good somehow do not know how that happens um it just does so 
I mean, but I also like fruits and vegetables. But now, guess I'm not eating fruits and vegetables because apparently they're goddamn poison. <laughs> Time to go back to the five layers of ice cream. Here we go. Um, live it up. But anyways, uh, next, what was that we just did? Um, okay. Uh, Miley Cyrus says, touring isn't healthy for her. It erases my humanity and my connection. I don't know. Well, one, um, I think the massive cocaine use might have more to do with it. <laughs> it is something anyways. Like, you know, you don't get a voice like that from a <laughs> clean living. Um, and, uh, as anyway, like very grudge voice. So I would say touring. I mean, what? I hate so much people that do this bullshit, like complaining about having everything, having everything, basically having all this stuff just handed to you. Having a dad who you know is a one of the greatest one hit wonders of all time. Um, I mean, yeah, it probably sucked at times when you were a kid, but also guess what? You don't have to do any of this. My, I'm sure she has enough money to coast for the rest of her life. So stop complaining about doing something that you are choosing to do. It's my same argument that I've always used about Kurt Cobain and like why I don't feel sorry for Kurt, Kurt Cobain, even though I am a massive Nirvana fan and a massive fan of Kurt Cobain. I think he is or was a complete genius. But for him to just be like complaining about fame and success when you are choosing to perform at these giant venues, choosing to release music or release albums like through a major record label, like you don't have to do that. Which I think they were through Sub Pop, but I think Sub Pop was like through Geffen, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, like you, you don't have to do any of this you don't have to do anything literally can do nothing and there's nothing anyone can say about it or they can say whatever they want there's nothing anybody can do to make you like you don't have to tour you don't have to keep like putting music out the way you're doing it make whatever you want stay at home now i mean you don't even have to go to a studio you just have the studio at your house and if you do still want to make music because you enjoy making music do it release it and do nothing for it don't tour, or if you tour, I guarantee the same way Kurt Cobain could have done this, same way Molly Cyrus could have done this, or could do this, if you don't want to tour, you don't have to. You could literally call up any, and if you don't want to do these huge venues because you feel like it's making you lose your humanity, give me a fucking break. But even if that is what you think, all you could just call up any, I guarantee you, if you called up any local bar, Throughout the country, they would be more than happy to have you. <laughs> so, yeah, you don't have to perform at, you know, uh, well, it's not Staples Center, whatever. You don't have to perform at the Garden ever again. You could perform at the club down the street from the Garden, a couple blocks down from the Garden that fits, you know, 100, 110 people. They'll have you. <laughs> like, I mean... And you also don't have to tour. You can just do that once and then be like, all right, I'm, you know, I performed. It was fun. I'm going to go hang out at my house for the next, you know, 11 months. Like that, 
I just I will I will never understand that mentality. I don't understand about Kirk Cobain, and he put you know he put a damn barrel of a shotgun in his mouth because of it, which is insane to me. Like you made you chose to do this and be famous, and you can kind of dive into Kirk Cobain and find out that like. He liked, he played up being famous. It wasn't like he was just like, oh, I hate this so much. He was just whiny about being famous, which, I mean, you became a musician. The pinnacle of being a musician, or like how you know you've like done the best at your work, is you usually end up becoming famous. Now, if that's like the reason for doing it, that's not good. That shouldn't be the reason you do it. But that is... Every musician that I'm sure Kurt Cobain was a fan of, the reason he knew they existed is because to some level they were famous. Because, you know, through their talent, impact, whatever it may be. So, her, it's just, I, I, I hate that mentality so much. Like, yeah, don't seek being famous, but don't get all pissy whenever you whenever it happens whenever it falls into your lap and you're like oh i don't want this i'm an artist like fuck off i mean my sister isn't a fucking artist anyways but whatever i mean granted i am wearing a goddamn acdc t-shirt so what the hell do i know about art but you know you would never hear angus young complaining about being famous i'll tell you that even bon scott granted he drank himself to death but it wasn't because he was having a hard time being famous all right Oh God! All right, so this will be the last one we'll do for the old news because this is gonna this is gonna take something out of me, I'm sure. Um, so Oprah Winfrey and Dwayne Johnson launched People's Fund of Maui to aid wildfire victims. Well, you know what? How about this? How about not putting that pressure on the people, most of which are living paycheck to paycheck, and you, Dwayne Johnson, and you, Oprah Winfrey, who combined. Over a billion dollars. Well, I think Oprah alone is worth a billion dollars. Like, what is... Let me... Hold on a second. What is the net... What is their net worth? Like, combined. I gotta see this. Um, so, Oprah Winfrey net worth... Which I know these things aren't, like, entirely accurate. Jesus Christ. $2.5 billion. <laughs> Even if that is like off by half a billion, that's still, oh my God. And then Dwayne Johnson net worth. Let's see what his is. I mean, I'm sure it's not Dwayne Johnson. That is so sickening. 800 million. All right. So you combine that 3.3 billion. That is 3. So $3.3 billion. So unless my math is, I think, mm, I mean, there's like, what, 330 million people in the U.S.? So that's, like, enough to give everyone, what, $10? Well, I guess that's not much. But basically, the point I'm trying to make is you take care of it. Which, one, let's not pretend like Oprah Winfrey didn't start these damn fires. <laughs> I mean... You know, granted, I wasn't there. Never, you know, I don't have any skin in the game. But we all know that Oprah handed 
a bucket of gas. Oprah for sure handed over a thing of gasoline and some matches to Stedman and said, Stedman, you know what to do. <laughs> Gail's going to be the lookout and you, you, you get me some cheap uh, Hawaiian property. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, just for Oprah and Dwayne Johnson to have the fucking, to have the balls to say, to like beg people to donate and call it the people's fund. When you are both combined sitting on $3.3 billion. Now, I, I don't know how much money they're expecting to raise. I don't know what their goal is, which I don't believe in the article. It said that they had necessarily a goal. Let's say the goal is $50 million. It's a pretty good amount of money. Um, that would be unnoticeable for them. I mean, Oprah, let's say Oprah. Oprah is the one who has, you know, way more money. She has four, three times as much money as Dwayne Johnson, which is baffling, too. But for Oprah to donate $50 million would be, I mean, it'd be like me throwing away, like, a $5 bill. Which, you know, not to, not to brag. <laughs> like, it's insane. That they are like begging people to do this when goddamn Oprah fucking started this shit. There's no way. And I know like it's a, you know, it's this is some like Alex Jones conspiracy shit, you know, like Oprah started the damn fires. I, you know, what it maybe, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist. I like conspiracies. I like intermingling with basket cases and nut jobs. It's kind of my bread and butter. But. If somehow a security camera at like a Circle K caught Stedman on video filling up, just filling up gallons of gasoline into buckets and carrying them off into the jungle, uh, I would not be surprised one bit. (laughs) So, you know, maybe, maybe not. I'm just saying this is this is not good. You do it. You take care of it. I mean, uh, it's just mind-boggling to me. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's celebrity friends who vacation to Hawaii, uh, you know, twice a year, who actually give a shit and, like, or not that they, they don't care. It's one, they don't care about the people of Hawaii. No way. Dwayne Johnson, probably. There's not a chance. Which really my fault. My issue isn't with Dwayne Johnson that much. My issue with Dwayne Johnson's more that like I, you know, stop making movies. Um, my issue is more with Oprah Winfrey because there's always just been something so fucking scummy and grimy about Oprah Winfrey, and when she does this kind of bullshit, it immediately makes me like think like you know. You're friends with, like, the richest people in the world. And you are one of the richest people in the world. Why are you begging people who work at a goddamn 7-Eleven to (laughs) save this place that the only reason you care about it is because you vacation in these, like, million-dollar rentals and, you know, live in this, like, luxury. While the people of Hawaii, you know, not everybody, but a lot of the people of Hawaii live in... um, you know, damn near living in poverty. 
while you're, you know, in this retreat getting your fucking toes sucked on by Gale. And <laughs> meanwhile, there is just streets filled with meth and a rampant Dog the Bounty Hunter issue. Um, I mean, doors getting busted down 24-7 by Dog and his family. So, you know, stop being a hypocrite. You pay for it. You pay for the place. I mean, goddamn, they've done enough for your fucking fat ass anyways. All right, well, that's enough of that. I'm going to have a fucking aneurysm. So, um, time to move on. Let's see, what do we have to, uh, what are we moving on to next, I wonder? Oh, okay. Well, that'll be good. So, let's take a little break, and, uh, I got some hot take action next, and then, uh, you know, other stuff to talk about, but, uh, yeah, take a little break, move on to hot takes. So, here we are. Got a uh, steamy hot take for everyone. So, this is something I did not know was a hot take <laughs> until um, decently uh, recently. So, for my entire life, I mean, maybe not entirely, as long as I can remember, I never take hot showers. I shower a lot, but I never take hot showers. I have always taken blistering cold showers. (laughs) And I'm sure that I just lost whatever little fan base group or whatever. That felt fucking gross to call it a fan base. Whatever viewership I have just went down about 70%, I imagine. So (laughs) the 30% who are still here, thank you. But also... I understand. <laughs> I I mean, I found out like kind of the hard way. So I found out just from telling, making the mistake of talking about how. So I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, how like I growing up just kind of mimicked behavior that I would read about that like famous people did, whether or like from movies. So like watching a movie seeing how this person act and like kind of copying their mannerisms, their like what they, how they acted, how they, you know, like fuck society, like all that kind of shit. Um, like all through high school, I basically like, I, I basically like mimicked Jim Morrison throughout all of high school because I thought it would make me cool. And in a weird way, like it kind of worked as a trick. Like I tricked myself into thinking I was like cooler than I was. Cause I was actually, I'm mean, a fucking loser. Um, but it, you know, I mean, if you can trick yourself, then is that not your reality? So, uh, as you know, as Confucius says, maybe might've said it once. Um, but I remember being really little, like, man, maybe third or fourth grade. So pretty young. And I would just read biographies, like read a biography a week. I mean, granted, I'm not not talking about like giant, like Walter Isaacson biographies, but like, you know, decent size for like a kid biographies. Cause there's all those like, kind of like our school library, have all these like kind of like kids versions of like biographies of famous people. And every week, I mean, I would just go to the library constantly cause, and get, and what 
read every one of the biographies. And I remember reading one about Beethoven, like a kid, you know, kid's biography of Beethoven. And in that book, they talked about how before he would compose music, he would take a bucket of like freezing cold water and just dump it over his head and then start composing because he believed that it made his brain like way sharper, more active. Um, and he believed that he could like compose music faster and better because his brain was like, you know, had just jump started to like, you know, a hundred miles an hour. So from that moment on, I started just taking every morning, taking super cold showers because I thought it would make me more like more. I thought it would make me smarter, um, make me more like creative, like, you know, like, I don't know why the fuck I needed to be creative. I mean, whatever. I had a, like a very active imagination as a kid and I thought it would just make it so much better if I just took freezing cold showers and it became a habit that I've done ever since. Now, what I'll usually do is, like, usually my method, which this is going to, God, this is going to sound so fucking weird to most people. Um, and I, re- I really didn't think this was that weird until just, like, bringing it up to people and seeing the look of, like, horror on their faces. Because, like, when someone tells me they take, like, blistering hot showers where, like, it, like their skin is red and shit, like, that sounds miserable. I mean, granted, I hate being hot, so, you know, there's that. But, like, oh, God, I hate, I hate hot showers. Hate them. And, but what I'll do is, like, I'll usually flip the, um, you know, like, turn the shower on halfway. So it's, like, lukewarm medium. That's, like, the initial. So I get in, and then every so often I click, 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 click. Until I finally get, until I get, end up getting it to as cold as it can possibly be, and then I stand in that for, oh God, I don't know, 15, 10, 10 minutes probably, maybe fifteen at the most, but at least a solid ten minutes, just standing in there like shaking and breathing. <laughs> I'm like a goddamn psychopath. Uh, now, granted, if I was to ever be in a situation with a, uh, you know, with a nice female. And she wanted to take a shower together, which, <laughs> jokes on you, what a horrible decision you just made. Um, but if that ever somehow happens, um, I, I might have to spend, <laughs> might have to go for the warm shower in that situation. Because boy, does my John Thomas shrink to about. <laughs> I mean, that thing becomes an any real fast. Like whenever I get a shower, I look like Buffalo Bill in that goddamn skin suit. Like, <laughs> like I'm basically doing a reverse Mulan um, <laughs> every time I get a shower. That is the one downside. Is like, and I do worry sometimes that I'm gonna like die in the shower, like have like a heart attack in the shower, <laughs> which you know, <clears throat> there's a little taste of my brain. But I do worry that I'm going to have a heart attack in the shower and that when they find me, I mean, because I'll be basking in ice cold water for who knows how many hours, that when they find me, my, my dick's about that big. And boy, even in the afterlife, I don't want that kind of embarrassment. So, which I mean, I'm by no means a shower, um, you know, in general, but 
it's incredible how small it can get during these showers. <laughs> like, I mean, like it feels like a callus. Like <laughs> cows in the right way. Like a like a you know, little carbuncle somewhere or something. Like I'm rubbing like, what the fuck is this? It's like, oh that's my goddamn penis. Um Yeah, so you know, there's a risk. There's a risk to it. But that's that's my steamy hot take, or should I say steamy cold take? <laughs> steamy cold take for the week. Write in what you feel about this. You know, leave a comment if you agree, disagree. If you if you were one of the psychopaths who take cold showers like me, I would love to know because I feel like I'm alone in this. And you know, it's never great being alone. Oh, all right. Moving on. Next topic. Take a little break. I'll be be back with um. I'm gonna do the old little uh, that movie ain't as bad as you think it is. So. Alright, so for this one, for the, uh, that movie ain't as bad as you think it is, give it a shot, whatever I have this called. I can't remember what, even what I have this called, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> I'm doing a movie that, well one, I believe is the first rated R movie I ever saw, so that's a bit of a life changer. Um, a movie that has made a very big impact on me a movie i've seen well over a hundred times which i might do i'm still thinking about doing this segment like the hundred hundred time club because there are just like a certain set of movies i've seen over a hundred times that i would like to give a little because some of them are going to be to most people baffling that i've seen these movies that many times a little taste of that uh one of them young guns <laughs> so but there just are there's just there's a certain you know number of movies I've seen over a hundred times. Can't help it. Is what it is. I like repetitive shit. So blah blah blah. Back to back to now. The movie that I'm talking about is a movie that again I do not understand why people hate this movie. And I've watched it so if, so for the longest time so the movie, I should probably just say the name of the movie. That'd probably be a good thing to do. Um, is a movie with a whopping 4.9 on IMDb. The classic 90s monster flick, Anaconda. <laughs> okay, so for the longest time, did not know that people hate this movie. No clue. No idea how universally hated this movie is. It makes no sense to me. I have... And and so when I found that out, I don't know, maybe when I was like, maybe let's say 14, 15. I don't know, when did I... Whenever IMDB kind of became like widely used, which I'd say is probably around that time, maybe even a little earlier. Whenever I was first able to like read the reviews of movies that were like old and see like what people thought of movies... Which I wish I never was able to... I wish that never existed. Because, God, like... It's kind of nice just watching a movie and not knowing what people think about it. Because sometimes, as much as I like to think I'm an independent woman, um, I definitely am uh, swayed 
if I know that like a movie sucks before I watch it, or if I know a movie's supposed to be amazing before I watch it, because then if a movie sucks, I'm like already like, God damn, well, what's the point of even watching it? If I know a movie's supposed to be like universally loved, like critically loved, I'm immediately nitpicking it, like thinking, like, what the fuck, this movie isn't that good, and I don't like that I do that. I try not to, and I think in most cases I'm, I can still watch a movie knowing whatever the review is that I'm just gonna watch it for me, but there are times where I notice that I sway my uh like i'm already watching it with a mindset of like you know not liking the movie which is not good so but with anaconda i have watched this movie so many times since then since knowing how hated this movie is and still don't see it i mean i'm not that dumb despite what (laughs) despite what the comments say i'm not that stupid Yet, I cannot figure out why people hate this movie. Um, Now, granted, Eric Stoltz, this is just one of the many movies that Eric Stoltz has no business being in. And it seems like they figured that out real quick because he's laying in a bed uh, (laughs) with a bandage on his neck for, um, I'd say, 90% of the movie. Which, poor guy. I mean, he was goddamn, he was Marty McFly for like a week. And then they were like, hey, um... You are so boring. <laughs> so, goodbye. Um, so, yeah, poor Eric Stoltz, whatever. But, like, it, okay, so when you go and read the reviews of this movie, the biggest criticism of this movie is John Voight and John Voight's accent. Now, it, unless I'm just so stupid that I'm missing what's right in front of me I don't get it I don't get why people think his accent's bad one 90% of the people who were like shitting on his accent they've never heard somebody from Paraguay Paraguay he may be nailing it <laughs> for all we know <laughs> like I would like to go up to everybody who is like shit on his accent in that movie and hold give them a picture of, of uh, give them a globe with like no names on it, say point out Paraguay, point it out. If you get it, then I will give you a thousand dollars and I will respect your opinion. <laughs> if you can, then you deserve it. Like he may be nailing it for all I know. Now, I would say the uh, the bookmakers would probably put that at a uh, <laughs> um, yeah. It, the chances are probably not very likely. That he's nailing this, you know, somewhat obscure country's accent. I mean, not as an obscure country, but like, you know, it, it, they didn't have him be Brazilian or Colombian. Like something more people would be like, oh, I know that. Like people, most Americans, I'm sure, do not even know that Paraguay is a country. Um, but like even still, like even if you're just hearing it from like as a Latin American accent and just having that vague impression of what a Latin American accent is. He's doing it. Like, these are the same people who, if they watch Scarface, see no issue with Al Pacino's horrible Cuban accent. Al Pacino's Cuban accent in Scarface is one of the worst accents of all time. It is terrible. But they they don't see any issue with that. But when they watch this, they're like, oh, that accent sucks. Like, John Voight's accent is so much better in this than Al Pacino's as Tony Montana. Um, so I immediately disregard 
anyone's opinion when they say that that's the that sucks about this movie is that there's again I mean it just doesn't make any sense. But then you look at the cast of this movie. The cast of this movie is incredible. So not only John Voight, who I mean he's one of the greatest actors of all time. Granted, a bit of a nut job <laughs> in uh, more recent years has <laughs> kind of turned into a um, I don't know kind of gotten into the uh, meatloaf Ted Nugent <laughs> grouping. Um, but regardless, John Boy's still an incredible actor. Then you also have Jennifer Lopez in Prime. I mean, Jennifer Lopez has always been in her prime, but this, you know, I mean, this movie starts off basically. I mean, well, it starts off with Danny Trejo, which is hilarious. Um, but it starts off with Danny Trejo, you know, unaliving himself because he's about to get eaten by a snake. Um, but then immediately cuts in, and you get a nice look at uh, J Lo's uh, rumpus. Um, so already, they know the they know what the viewers want when this movie is being made. You have Danny, a young Danny Trejo, which is always it's the that's how every movie should start off with Danny Trejo having like a cold open, <laughs> no matter what. Schindler's List, Toy Story, whatever. Start off with Danny Trejo doing something. Um, then, yeah, J-Lo, Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz doesn't need to be in this movie. But then Ice Cube. And, it's, you know, Ice Cube's awesome in this movie. Owen Wilson, who was, like, not known at all when this movie came out. I mean, he was in, like, Bottle Rocket. But who the fuck ever saw Bottle Rocket? Um, yeah, and then, I mean, I guess none of the other actors are really that well-known. There's, like, Carrie Warner, who... Was in like eight legged freaks, so yeah, big old big score there. Um, and then like Hyde, what's his name? Hyde something that plays Westridge, whatever. There's people, big name people in this movie, and J Lo and Ice Cube fucking survive. There's no horror movie where that happens. <laughs> so already, you know, way ahead of the game. Now, granted, the sound of the anaconda just screaming at people is a stretch because anaconda i mean snakes in general don't really make a sound i think some of them some of them make like a little bit of a hiss but they definitely don't fucking scream like uh like liza minnelli <laughs> whenever they're attacking people and they also for sure aren't chasing a boat down the you know down a river and like hunting people but if you don't have that, I mean, God, you got to do, I mean, you got to take fucking liberties. It's a movie. It is a movie. Watch this movie as a movie. Not like, this is not a documentary. Granted, they are making a documentary in the movie, which is also hilarious. But I'm just saying, like, this movie, interesting fact about this movie. So, one, if you go back and watch this movie, um, I don't know why this is the case, but movies that were made 30 years ago have way better CGI than movies that are made today. I don't know if it's because like CGI was so like new that they were like putting that they had to put so much effort into it. So like if you know you're having to put an insane amount of effort into it, you're gonna make damn sure that it looks good. Whereas now they can basically just copy and paste CGI and they don't really fix the like add some stuff and it just looks cheap. 
Like, I think because CGI is so much cheaper now than it used to be, it is, looks cheap. I mean, I think that has something to do with it, with CGI being so expensive in the 90s. So expensive that every second that you see this anaconda on screen, every second, it cost $100,000. <laughs> now granted they did use a lot of practical effects which they should be using in movies anyways but the cgi scenes with the snake look good they look good i mean there's granted not, there's not a lot like a lot of this movie is practical effects which i love but even the scenes that are cgi like they look so much better than movies now um so I'll leave you, I mean, one thing I love about movies in general is looking at who was supposed to play who and who declined. So I'll just end it with this, because, goddamn. If you haven't seen I mean, just watch Anaconda and have fucking fun. I don't understand why people hate this movie. Um, J-Lo was supposed to be played by Jillian Anderson uh, from The X-Files, which, I mean, always had a big crush on Jillian Anderson, so probably would have enjoyed it too, but <laughs> you got to have J-Lo in this movie. Um, and then last one, Owen Wilson was going to originally be played by uh, Chris Farley, <laughs> which this is a much different movie if Chris Farley is in the uh, Owen Wilson role. But I think Chris Farley had to bow out to do Beverly Hills Ninja. Might be wrong. I know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Beverly Hills Ninja. So, I mean, that's a pretty big hunk of shit, too. So he, he should have done Anaconda, but he was also supposed to, uh, supposed to be Shrek. And even recorded dialogue. And if you haven't ever seen that on YouTube, it's worth the, worth the tube. So, there's my review of a movie that came out 26 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, again, really on it. Um, I'm just saying, I feel like there's got to be people in this world who hear what I'm saying and know that I'm like, that I'm right. But maybe not. So, anyways enjoy um take a little break do a little okay so again welcome back this week's half-ass history is going to be a little bit different so instead of doing three completely different stories um so i did a i mean some of so the same with all the half-ass histories like some of the stuff, like, or most of it, I'm already decently familiar with ahead of time. It's just shit that I'm, like, trying to remember. Where I'm like, oh, yeah, that was an interesting story. Some of it I've never heard. I'm just, like, you know, in my readings come across it. Um, and then some is I'm just going through, like, a deep dive into a topic and finding out, like, crazy shit and, like, writing down the crazy stuff so that I can, you know, do this. So that's a little bit of the, uh, you know, how the sausage is made. The um, so lately I've gone down a huge rabbit hole on a literary giant, Ernest Hemingway, and I'm gonna do three. I'm gonna just do this whole thing is gonna be about Ernest Hemingway, which if you aren't too familiar with Ernest Hemingway or don't seem like you care about Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, scratch that off your head right now. This <laughs> Ernest Hemingway had the craziest life I have ever read about. I've ever heard in out of anybody that I've ever like done a deep dive into. No one 
comes close to Ernest Hemingway. Just like the people he was around, what he did, how insanely tough he was, and how batshit crazy he was. Ernest Hemingway is like has become my idol <laughs> in the past like couple months. Um, so obviously Ernest Hemingway, the writer of um, "For Whom the Bell Tolls," "The Old Man in the Sea," like very huge books that you know school readings usually um like every high school english class is at some point in your years of high school you're going to be reading an ernest hemingway book um so ernest hemingway so the first little like segment of his life that i'm gonna talk about is earning ernest hemingway's connection to like other writers uh because there's some wild shit (laughs) of stories with him and other like famous writers uh of like you know of that time like early 1900s to even into like the mid 1900s so (laughs) so Ernest Hemingway at one point was a war reporter and that's like it's not necessarily how he got famous but he what he did get a pretty good amount of fame by being a war reporter um and this is during um the first world war I believe Oh, actually, it might have been the Second World War. doesn't matter. He was a war reporter. There was a time where Ernest Hemingway, as a war reporter, met a young soldier who, on the battlefield, Ernest Hemingway, hang out with him. This guy loves, you know, knows Ernest Hemingway, so he's wanting to talk to him because he fancies himself a bit of a writer. That fellow was named J.D. Salinger. J.D. Salinger is the writer of, uh, the author of, um, Catcher in the Rye, ipso facto responsible for the death of John Lennon. Ernest Hemingway and like J.D. Salinger like was like immediately enamored by Ernest Hemingway, like obsessed with this son of a bitch while they were, you know, interacting on the uh, the battlefields and everything. Like so when things would like kind of die down a little bit, J.D. Salinger immediately is on Ernest Hemingway like glue trying to like learn what he can about writing. And he began to, like, just have this huge fascination with him and, and like, was, like, idolizing him in just a short amount of time until <laughs> Ernest Hemingway was kind of fucking around um, with a gun and was, like, you know, talking about, like, you know, shooting people. Like, was fucking around with it and just went up to this chicken and shot it in the head and killed it for absolutely no reason. J.D. Salinger said he was like utterly disgusted and immediately cut off all communications with Ernest Hemingway. Was like, okay, Ernest Hemingway I thought was an awesome dude, amazing writer. Turns out he's a psychopath. And this is a common theme throughout the entire life of Ernest Hemingway. So J.D. Salinger gets a little first-hand taste. Then he, you know, leaves War Goes and he writes Catcher in the Rye. Very famous. Uh, so Ernest Hemingway also used to, like, go hang out in Paris and get fucked up with Pablo Picasso and James Joyce. Which, that's a crazy idea as well. Um, I mean, used to just, like, beat the shit out of people, too. Ernest Hemingway, a known uh, pugilist. But one of the funniest stories that I read about Ernest Hemingway, 
like one of the funny stories you can, that there is about Ernest Hemingway and his interaction with other like famous writers at the time is that Ernest Hemingway kind of had a little bit of a friendship with F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote um, you know, The Great Gatsby. And I think The Last Tycoon is him as well. I'm pretty sure. But, you know, specific, specifically The Great Gatsby, one of the most famous books of all time, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. One night, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald are hanging out, drinking, obviously. F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of is like down in the dumps. Old Ernie is like, hey, F. Scott, <laughs> you know, you know, why the long face? And F. Scott Fitzgerald confides in old Ernie that his wife, F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife, uh, told him that he had a small penis. And boy, there isn't a thing on this planet that can tear a man down more than hearing that he's got a small John Thomas. So he, so old Ernie is like, I know the perfect way to cheer this man up. So he goes, hey, F. Scott, come with me. Let's go into the bathroom. F. Scott Fitzgerald at this time has to be thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to fuck Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> this is not good. Um, so they go in the bathroom. Ernest Hemingway is like, uh, hey, F. Scott, pull your pants down. So F. Scott Fitzgerald is like, oh, God, like it really is happening. Pulls his pants down. Ernest Hemingway looks like intently looks at his uh, pecker and then says, yeah. Actually looks pretty good. Pretty good size. Like he actually said, it's a good size. That's the quote of that Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> that's to directly quote Ernest Hemingway in his um, you know, reply back to Escoff Show. It said, It's a good size. Then so that's already weird, but you know, a hell of a friendship, really. But to make it even better. Ernest Hemingway then told F. Scott Fitzgerald that what he needs to do is go down the street to the Louvre, famous art, the most arguably the most famous art museum in the world, and he said, "Go take a look at all the statues of all the Greek gods and Greek warriors, and take a look at how tiny their dicks are." This is actually what he told him. I'm not making this up. As much as it sounds like I am, and as much as I kind of maybe embellish some things, he told him to go to the Louvre and say, see how small their dicks are? Yours is way bigger than that. And those are Greek gods. <laughs> and like the most famous Greek warriors of all time. And your dick is at least twice that size. So, fuck your wife. So, yeah. So, here's Ernest, that's Ernest Hemingway's interactions with other writers. Mind-boggling. Um, now, take a look at just... I mean, goddamn this dude. So, Ernest Hemingway, as, like, obviously as friendly as he was, <laughs> clearly, um, he was also batshit crazy. Ernest Hemingway was a complete nut job. An, an amazing writer. Without a doubt, one of the greatest writers of all time. But a nut job. Now, a lot of this is because Ernest Hemingway had an insane amount of cats. There's theories that, like, you know, you can get like a men you can get all kinds of mental disorders from cats. He also could just be nuts. So part of Ernest Hemingway's craziness, as it does with a lot of people, manifests in severe paranoia. <laughs> and Ernest Hemingway was a very paranoid person. So much so that he used to get in a little sailboat. Like or I'm sorry, used to get in a little fishing boat 
with machine guns and go patrol the Gulf of Mexico looking for German U-boats during World War II. <laughs> he was so convinced that German U-boats, like little German sub or German submarines, were going to make their way up the Gulf of Mexico and land in, you know, fucking Mobile, Alabama, that he would just patrol the Gulf of, like he would just patrol the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> looking for German U-boats <laughs> with machine guns thinking like, "Oh, well if I see one, I'm shooting these motherfuckers." Like <laughs> So he thought, I mean, he legitimately thought that he was going to save the, save the country. Um, he also, because he used to go to Cuba, he went to Cuba a lot and wrote books like, you know, about Cuba, like, you know, heavily invested in Cuba. He became very paranoid that the FBI was surveying him, like that he was under massive surveillance by the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. He was completely convinced of this because of his connections to Cuba and, you know, Cuba's new leader, Fidel Castro. And everyone told him, like, you're being crazy, you're being crazy. Like, they're not, nobody's fucking spying on you. There's nobody wiretapping your phones. This is just all in your head. You think that they're doing this. J. Edgar Hoover didn't give a fuck about what you're doing. But he was insistent. He's like, no, they are. They're wiretapping my phones. They're following me. They're doing all this shit. And yeah, no one believed him. Turns out <laughs> he was being spied on by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI thoroughly. They were spying on him so much because of the exact reasons that he laid out because of his connections to Cuba and then Cuba having this new leader, Fidel Castro. And so his paranoia so him thinking that he was gonna you know stumble upon a german u-boat and take it out with his machine gun on his fishing boat as crazy as that is he actually was kind of right and that's like the weird thing about paranoia is like it sometimes serves a purpose it's just you know weeding out the times where like you hop in a boat and uh try to hunt german submarines but he was being spied on. So, got to give him that at least. So, the last one, uh, last little segment of Ernest Hemingway's life is go. I'm going to go through some of just the crazy stuff that happened to him where you're like, maybe Ernest Hemingway was immortal. Now, obviously, I'm saying I'm using it all this in past tense. So, he wasn't immortal. <laughs> but. There are times in Ernest Hemingway's life where you're like, this man was like a demigod, <laughs> like Hercules. So Ernest Hemingway was in Africa one time, and he was on a plane flying over, you know, like the uh, savannah area of Africa. His plane that he's in crashed. He's the only one who survives this plane crash. And it crashed in the middle of a basically, like, grazing area for elephants. Elephants are not the friendliest animals. <laughs> they are massive killing machines. So Ernest Hemingway is now stranded in the middle of um, this area in Africa where there's, like, killer elephants everywhere. And he just camps out, waiting. He's like, ah, eh, somebody will find me. 
They'll figure out where I'm at. And he just camps out while there's all these, like, you know, super dangerous animals everywhere. He does end up getting rescued. Um, a, you know, they find out, like, where the, that the plane went down. They send a rescue plane. They get him. He gets on that plane. Flying out from, uh, you know, his little, camps, his little makeshift campsite. And as they're leaving his little makeshift campsite, he looks over and sees a flame coming out of uh, off one of the wings of the plane. He's like, that's not good. <laughs> that plane crashes. But when this plane crashes, he, again, only one alive. And when that plane crashes, he is pinned to his seat. And not able to get out of the plane. So what he ends up doing. Because he's right next to the door. And is like I gotta get out of this fucking plane. He starts headbutting the door. Until it fucking finally opens up. Like he headbutts this door so many times. That he is able to open a plane door with his headbutts. When he stumbles out of the plane. It turns out. That he had headbutted the store so many times that part of his skull was exposed. <laughs> now, obviously, they didn't know a whole lot about CTE back in the day. Um, but if there is anything that can give you Benoit level CTE, that's it. Um, which would explain a lot of the other Ernest Hemingway uh, characteristics. So. Not only did he survive one plane crash, gets into another plane, survive that plane crashes, survives it by headbutting his way out of the plane, exposing part of his skull. All in all, throughout Ernest Hemingway's life, he survived anthrax, malaria, skin cancer, a crushed skull, dysentery, a ruptured kidney, ruptured liver, and a ruptured spleen. He survived every one of those things. Turns out that the only thing that can kill Ernest Hemingway is Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> and, you know, last day of his life, puts a gun up to his head and ends it. And that's how, out of all these crazy things Ernest Hemingway did, that's how he goes out. Takes himself out because nothing else in this world can take out Ernest Hemingway but Ernest Hemingway. My God. So, hopefully you found that interesting. I find Ernest Hemingway to be a fascinating human being. Um, so, again, take a little break, and I'll finish up with a little uh, where that come from. Okay, so, for this segment of this week's uh, where that come from, I think this is a pretty funny one. Uh, which I love doing these, and I'm glad people seem to be liking them, but hopefully you like this one as well. So, back in the 1700s, there was a fella named Captain James Cook. James Cook, pretty well-known figure, at least the name, um, but he was, ba I mean, he was a British explorer who basically navigated his way around Oceania. So, New Zealand, Australia, all the way up into, like, Polynesia and Hawaii. Um, ends up in Hawaii, uh, and things don't go well for James Cook. <laughs> James Cook is in Hawaii. This is like his last, uh, last, uh, travel, uh, set of travels. James Cook ends up in Hawaii. 
um, has a bit of a rough go with the um, native Hawaiians. And at one point, things tensions start building between him and the Hawaiians, and he kidnaps the king of Hawaii. Um, kind of tricks him into following him. King doesn't really understand that he's being kidnapped. Um, but then all the other people, all the other Hawaiians are like, what the fuck? No, he's kidnapping our king. He's taking our king. So they start to kind of like come at him. Now the king realizes like, oh, shit, they're not just like, we're not hanging out. <laughs> like They're kidnapping me. So they, this big fight starts. Uh, James Cook ends up getting bashed in the head and stabbed to death by you know, these native Hawaiians, they end up disemboweling him, um, and then boiling him to like rip all the like meat and skin off of his bones. And they, these like native Hawaiians use James, captain James cook's skeleton, taking the bones apart and make like religious artifacts with it. (laughs) Yeah. So James cook legendary explorer. That's what happens to him. That's how he ends up going out. But before that happens, one of the biggest contributions that James Cook gave to the people of the world is that when James Cook was in Australia, when James Cook was in the Australian New Zealand area, on that expedition, he's in Australia and he's meeting with the Aboriginals, like the Aborigines of Australia. He's meeting with the Aborigines and he's seeing these animals, these giant Terror, what I think are terrifying animals hopping around big hops at a time, and they're everywhere. These like weird donkey, uh, like weird, like donkey faced hybrid, strange animals. He's seeing them, and then every time he sees one hop by, he asks the ab- one of the Aboriginal people, What is that called? Keeps asking. He's like, "What is that called? Like, what do you what do y'all call this animal? Like, what do you call this? What is that called?" Every time he says that, they say "gangaroo, gangaroo." So he, kind of fucking up the pronunciation, writes it down as "kangaroo." Now that is obviously where we get the word "kangaroo" and why we call that animal the kangaroo. The <laughs> the funny thing about this is that when James Cook is asking the Aborigines, what do you call that? What do you call that? And they're saying gangaroo. They didn't call that a gangaroo. Gangaroo actually means we don't know what you're saying. <laughs> so every time he's asking what's that animal called, they're just like saying, yeah, prick, we don't speak English. Like We have no idea what you're saying right now. So we're saying... We don't know. We're saying literally, we don't know what you're saying. And he's like, oh, it's called a, it's called a kangaroo and writes it down as kangaroo. So when you see this terrifying creature known as the kangaroo, what you're really calling it is the, we don't know what you're saying. So I find that to be very fascinating. Hope you do too. Um, I think that'll wrap it up. That takes care of everything. So, um, yeah. Be sure to like, you know, obviously like and subscribe. Check out the merch store. Buy a t-shirt. All that good stuff. Um, Yeah. This was a good one, I think. Solid performance. Could have been better. I agree. But, you know, not so bad. Well, 
Until next week, goodbye.